right, James chapter 1 is where we are tonight. You can take your Bibles and go with me to this new book study as we uh, venture on through the Bible. If you're new here to Cornerstone, we go straight through the Bible. And on Wednesday nights, we go even deeper. We go verse by verse. And so we just finished uh, Hebrews, so we're now moving on to the book of James. If you need a Bible tonight, one of the ushers will be glad to give you a Bible. If you want to raise your hand, they'll hand one your way. James chapter 1, we'll see how far we get tonight. But I'm going to first pray, and then I'm going to give you the background, as we always do when we start, start a new book study together. I always like to give you the background, who wrote it, when, why. So James chapter 1, let's first pause and pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. We just continue to rejoice concerning all that you did over Easter weekend. We thank you that we serve a risen Savior, Lord, and that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we just continue to celebrate you and worship you. We thank you for the hundreds of people who got saved. Uh, We just commit them to you, Lord. We pray that you would especially just fill them afresh with your Holy Spirit and that you would guide them and direct them and help them to grow in their faith as they journey with you. Uh, It's a privilege, Lord, Lord, just to uh, be able to witness some things this side of heaven that you're doing in visible, tangible ways. And we thank you for the invisible, intangible ways that you're providentially at work as well. And be with us now as we open up the book of James. We pray that you would strengthen our hearts and that you would encourage us and challenge us where we need it tonight. I thank you for all those who are here and those who are watching online. We commit our study to you now in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. For you note-takers, here's a little background on the book of James. The writer is none other than the guy after whom this book is named, James. But he is distinguished from James the Apostle. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Remember, uh, Jesus had some half-brothers and some half-sisters. They shared the same mother, but not the same father. Their father was Joseph, but the father of Jesus, of course, was God. And his supernatural birth was very different, unlike any other conception, un- unlike any other birth ever. And so this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55 names four half-brothers that Jesus had. James is one of them. Also, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, a different Judas. And it tells us that he also had sisters, plural, although they're not mentioned by name. So we know that he had at least two sisters because it is plural. So we had, uh, in essence, four brothers, half-brothers, two, at least two half-sisters. And so it was, you know, a uh, a large family by, by some uh, comparison. And, and so this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. James, the apostle, was martyred in A.D. 44 by Herod. Uh, his death uh, by the sword is recorded in Acts chapter 12. Uh, remember that the siblings of Jesus, the family of Jesus, did not initially accept him as Messiah. They doubted that he was the Christ. John chapter 7, verse 5 said that specifically... Jesus' brothers did not believe in him, but they would later come to believe because in Acts chapter 1 verse 14, it says that they are numbered among the 120 in the upper room after Jesus ascends back into heaven and the early church numbering initially about 120 are meeting in the upper room and they are waiting for the gift that Jesus promised, which was the gift of the Holy Spirit among those 
mentioned there in Acts 1.14 are the uh, brothers of Jesus. So at some point, they become believers in him as the Messiah. And then in Acts chapter 15, it tells us that, that this James, um, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, the writer of this book, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write it, um, becomes the leader slash pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And history tells us that he will lead the church there for some 30 years. Um, he is consulted along with some of the other early apostles regarding some church doctrine issues. And so in Acts 15, he speaks to that and he gives leadership and direction concerning those uh, doctrines of the faith. And so here he is, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, the leader of the church of Jerusalem, and, um, and the one that the Lord used to pen this epistle. Uh, he is traditionally and affectionately called Old Camel Knees. And the reason he is called that is because James had an incredible prayer life. And he was on his knees so much that his knees became calloused. And if you've ever seen camel's knees, they are calloused and they're gross looking. Um, and so tradition says that James was called old camel knees because he had developed such calloused uh, knees as the result of such uh, incredible uh, times of prayer, such a prayer warrior. Uh, tradition says that he was martyred in the year A.D. 62 by being thrown from the temple wall. Uh, church history says that Ananias, who was the high priest at the time, convened a meeting with the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council, and they demanded that James renounce his faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And when he refused to do so, uh, church history says that they ran him off the pinnacle of the temple. They threw him to his death from the highest point uh, of the Temple Mount area in the city of Jerusalem. So that's the background on the writer himself. The date of this epistle is somewhere around uh, A.D. 50, which makes it the earliest of all the New Testament books. Uh, some uh, theologians, some uh, church scholars date this book even earlier than that. Some date it around 45 A.D. So somewhere between 45, really no later than 50 A.D., uh, James was inspired to pen this epistle. So again, it makes it the earliest uh, your Bibles are not in chronological order. If they were in chronological order, the New Testament would begin with the book of James. Um, and, and so it predates Paul's epistles by at least two years. The recipients of this letter, as you'll notice in the first verse, um, is uh, the scattered Jewish believers. And when we say scattered Jewish believers, we're talking about the diaspora. The diaspora is the Jews who have been now dispersed uh, throughout in this particular time, Asia Minor in particular. And so this letter is apparently going to be read in multiple churches throughout Asia Minor to minister to uh, these Jewish believers. And the overall theme of this letter is practical Christian living. Um, he addresses it, if you'll notice real quickly in your Bibles there, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So the 12 tribes are referenced to Jews. Um, they were suffering, and they were living in poverty. 
Uh, They were suffering persecution because if you were a Jew who believed in Jesus as the Messiah, you were basically ostracized by your own people. The majority of the Jews did not believe that Jesus was Messiah. Remember, Jesus came among his own and his own received him not. So when you were a Jew who was a believer in Jesus as the Messiah, as the one who fulfilled more than 300 Old Testament prophecies related to the coming of the Messiah, the first coming, you were shunned by your family. Some families would have funerals for you. You were ostracized. If you had a business, people would stop buying from you. And so it was a very difficult time of persecution. It was a very difficult time for Jewish believers to basically survive. And so James is in part encouraging them uh, in in the midst of their persecution and their poverty as a result of nobody uh, buying from them. And, um, and, And yet it's causing some of them in their persecution to start living in a worldly manner. And so the overall theme of this, having to do with practical Christian living, is that James is going to challenge them to go on to spiritual maturity. He is going to give us, if, if you count, somebody did, I didn't, 50, 50 exhortations throughout this letter. Uh, the book of James has been compared to the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, in that you're going to read very short, succinct, pithy exhortations, one after another, after another, after another. It's kind of the wisdom literature of the New Testament that Proverbs is to the Old Testament. And, and James is going to challenge his, his readers here, that the evidence of a Christian's life is how that Christian lives. And that's why he's going to talk here about the, the delicate balance between faith and works. Because while he's going to make the argument that works don't save you, he's going to make the point that works show that you are saved. Now, this book has become problematic for, for some people. In fact, Martin Luther, when he read this book, he called it the epistle of straw. He didn't like it. He, in fact, he, was, he questioned whether it should even be included in the canon of Scripture. Because Luther came out of Roman Catholicism, and he was liberated by the book of Romans, and he really understood the whole idea that we don't work our way to heaven, that it's by grace are we saved through faith. And he was, he was liberated in his understanding. So he, he, he posts his you know, 95 thesis on the uh, um, uh, Wittenberg door in, there in Germany, and he, and he basically then... well. He, he is excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church, but he, but he basically leaves of his own uh, volition. And, and so then Protestantism, really, that vein, that stream of Protestantism, Protest, easy for you to say, Protestantism, um, that stream then uh, begins uh, to, to emerge, and, and here we are related to that stream. And so Luther's liberated from the whole idea of works, 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 And he reads the book of James, and he feels like James emphasizes works too much. And in reality, what James is going to teach us is that works are the evidence. If you're truly a Christian, you're going to live like one. And if you're not really a Christian, it's going to to be evident by the way you live. And so there shouldn't be a contradiction there. If, If you really are a Christian by belief, then you should also be a Christian by behavior. And so he calls... Christians, this is why this is a good practical book even for us today. He calls Christians to holiness. He calls Christians to holy living. And he says, listen, if you really are Christian, there's going to be some ways that you live out your faith. 
And, and so he's going to develop all of this in five short chapters. So the overall theme is practical Christian living and, and the idea of holiness. But if we, if we drill down to basically five main themes of this book, it would be these five main themes. Number one is trials and temptations. And that's one because it goes together here in chapter one. He's going to talk about trials. He's going to talk about temptations. But it's really one kind of continuous uh, stream of thought. Number two, another main theme here is, again, this relationship between faith and deeds or faith and works. Number three, he's going to talk about speech. You know, Christians should watch their mouths. And, and part of the evidence of, you know, that you really love Jesus is by the way you, you know, you, your speech is, by the way you talk, by, the, by your language. Uh, and number four, he's going to talk about wisdom. And then number five, he's going to talk about prayer. So we're going to be looking through, you know, the whole book here, but we're going to come across these themes. You'll see it. And, and he doesn't necessarily uh, talk about these different themes um, in, in chronological order. It's, he kind of um, mixes it all up throughout, throughout the book. So it's, some, it's somewhat ordered, and in other ways, it's somewhat of a disorganized uh, book, which is another reason why Luther felt like James wasn't the author of it. But anyway, that, that's for another debate. But... Um, but here we are um, in James chapter 1. I'm going to read just the first two verses because the first two verses, um, well, actually, I'll read the first uh, four verses. The first four verses here are full of just a lot. It's rich. I mean, there's a lot of meat here in this book. We're going to take our time and we're going to go through it slowly. But you'll notice here how rich it is just in the first four verses. So follow along here in your Bibles. James 1 verse 1. James, a servant of God, that word servant in the Greek is doulos. So he's happy to say, listen, I'm just, I'm a slave of Christ. I'm a servant of his. I belong to him. He's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Again, these are the Jewish believers that have been dispersed throughout Asia Minor. Greetings. He says in verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. It's just a universal term. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. All right, let's park it there for just a few minutes because verse 2 is a very challenging verse. Consider it pure joy. My brothers, by the way, he's going to use that term, my brothers. He's going to talk about brothers 15 times. He's going to specifically say my brothers eight times. So this is an affectionate letter, but it's also a very strong exhortation. He's writing to people that he loves. He's, He's writing to people that he shares a common bond with, a common faith with. They love Jesus. He loves Jesus. And right out of the gate here, he says something that's very challenging. I mean, you know, who among us naturally consider it joyful when we face trials of various kinds. But he, but he says it right at the beginning here. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. So first thing he's going to talk about here on, along the first topic is trials and temptations. And in regards to trials, he, he mentions this here in verse 2 about considering a pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now I've I've underlined three words in this verse, whenever, many, and kinds. 
to point out that what he's basically saying is three things from these three words, at least in the NIV translation. Number one, that trials are somewhat spontaneous. That's what he means by whenever you face. Okay, it's unpredictable. Trials don't tell you in advance when they're coming. Don't you wish you could prepare a little bit? But they're not going to call you up and say, listen, there's a trial coming next Tuesday. Get ready. Trials are spontaneous. They are unpredictable. Number two, they are numerous. He says, whenever you face trials of many, many is the key word there. They are numerous. They, they, They don't just simply come once only in your lifetime. Over the course of your life, you will experience many trials. And... He says many kinds. The third word there is kinds, meaning various. So trials come in spontaneous ways. Trials come in numerous ways. Trials come in various ways. There are many kinds of trials that we will face. We face trials in the world. We face trials in relationships. We face trials in health. We face trials from Satan. You know, he's a part of trying to afflict us. We, we face trials of various kinds. And yet, James says here, consider it pure joy. Now, he doesn't mean it in a celebratory way. He means it, well, I'll just quote for you out of Albert Barnes. Barnes has written a great commentary. Uh, and, and Barnes put it this way. We are not to consider it, meaning our trials, as punishment, a curse, or a calamity. That's, that's, that's what James means here by joy. We are not to consider it as a punishment when we go through a trial, as a curse when we go through a trial, or as calamity. In other words, trials are not the result of a bad God, but of a fallen world. That's what he's trying to say here. Which is why then we can consider it joy because when we realize that trials are not the result of a bad God, but of a fallen world, then we can turn to God to find the source of our joy through the trial. Now, everybody understands, right? Joy is different from happiness. Happiness is very circumstantial. Happiness is very temporal. Happiness, you know, will come and happiness will go depending on what day it is, what mood you're in, if it's sunny, if it's rainy, if your boss likes you, you know, all these kind of things, very circumstantial. That's happiness. Joy is a constant if you know Jesus. And that isn't to say that you don't have bad days, because trials come in various kinds, various ways, spontaneously, numerously, uh, and, and, in, and in many different ways. But it is to say that in the midst of the trial, there's this constant, there's this peace in the midst of it. There's this reliability on the Lord in the midst of it. There's the source of a contentment that does not fluctuate based on the circumstances. Our joy is rooted in Jesus. That's why this is not a, you know, this is not saying put on a plastic face, act hypocritical, pretend like, you know, everything's fine when everything's not fine, but it is simply to say, hey, things aren't fine. I'm going through this trial. But the source of my joy, the source of my strength, the source of my peace is in knowing Jesus. This is why Psalm 34 verse 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. And it says in Isaiah 41 10, So do not fear, for I am with you. 
Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And because of that, we can say like the psalmist did in Psalm 46, 1, that God is our refuge, our strength, our ever-present help in times of trouble. That's how we have joy in Him, because He helps us to face our trials, not alone, but with His help and with His presence. Then the question becomes, why? Why do trials come? When you look at the Bible, there are basically three reasons why trials come, and here they are. For our maturation, for our correction, and for our direction. All trials basically fall into one of those three categories, or maybe a combination. The first one is for our maturation. That's basically what this passage is saying to us here in verses 3 and 4. He says that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature. Uh, New King James and ESV says you might be perfect and complete, not lacking anything. Uh, this is very similar, by the way, to what Romans 5 tells us. Paul, Paul writes in Romans 5, 3 to 5. He says, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. So trials tend to grow us up. They build character in our lives. We don't, you know, I don't know anybody who really welcomes them. I'm just telling you the residual effect of trials is that it tends to grow us up. It draws us closer to the Lord in ways, friends, and those of you who've been through trials can, can acknowledge this. They bring us closer to God in ways that the good times just don't. I mean, you know, I love to press near to Jesus in the good times, but I'm telling you, I've pressed into him harder in the bad times. And as much as we don't like to go through the bad times, we grow more during the bad times than we do the good times. Is that, is that anybody's testimony? You grew by leaps and bounds through the difficult times, through the, the stretching times, through the challenging times. Uh, Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, when he was talking about his own trials and his own difficulties, he said, we're under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. He said, indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And so Paul was saying, I, I didn't like the trials, but I can tell you this much, it purged me of self-reliance, and it made me more God-dependent. And that's the nature of trials. You know, we esteem in our culture people who are self-made people. But let me tell you something. The problem with self-made people is they're self-reliant because they're self-made. And when you go through a difficult time, if, if you think you're going to be the source of, of your strength, you're mistaken. And, and that's when people begin to realize their desperate need for God. And so when Paul says that, he said, you know, these trials happen and I might not rely on myself as much as I would on God. Uh, trials have a way of moving us in God's direction. Trials have a way of growing us up and maturing us and refining us and deepening our walk with him. Uh, Billy Graham once wrote this. He said, quote, when a ship's carpenter 
needed timber to make a mast for a sailing vessel. He did not cut it in the valley, but up on the mountainside, where the trees had been buffeted by the winds. These trees, he knew, were the stronger of all. Hardship is not our choice, but if we face it bravely, it can toughen the fiber of our souls, end quote. And so trials come for maturation. Number two, for correction. Sometimes the trials we face, quite honestly, are brought on by our own bad choices. When we disobey God, uh, we sometimes invite difficulties. We sometimes invite trials. Um, God isn't pleased with our choices sometimes, but he will use our bad choices to bring correction so that we might learn. And therefore, some of the trials we experience are the direct result of our own disobedience. You look at the prodigal son in the story of the New Testament. When Jesus shared that story. You know, it was clear that the prodigal son um, wanted to live life the way he wanted to live it. And he was given liberty to do that. Um, but in living life the way he wanted to live it without real regard for God, and he squandered everything that his father had given him, it wasn't until he was in the pig crib eating what pigs eat that he began to realize his own desperate condition. And, and sometimes that's where we, we need to go before we finally will uh, be corrected enough. The trial brings correction. Uh, a similar thing, remember Jonah, the story of Jonah. I mean, Jonah disobeyed God. I don't want to go preach to the Ninevites. I don't want to go do this. So, you know, he, he ends up uh, going the opposite direction from Nineveh, gets on a ship, and tries to sail away from God, <laughs> God's calling, as if you could do that. And then God brings along the storm, you know, you know the story, and Jonah then is thrown into the sea by his own uh, admission. He's like, yeah, the reason we're in a bad storm is because I'm running from God, and so you, you all ought to just throw me overboard. And they're like, no, 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 we love you, Jonah, we'll just row faster back to shore. He's like, no, and then the storm gets worse, remember that? And so he's like, no, and they're like, yeah, you're right, we ought to just throw you overboard. And so then they throw him over, and then he's swallowed by a big fish. This isn't, this isn't a fable. It's a, it's a real story. It's just a, it's just, it was a big fish. Now, you know, we say whale, but the Bible doesn't really say whale. The Hebrew word is dag, D-A-G, as in dag. That's a big fish. Uh, <laughs> swallowed him up, spit him out. Guess what? All of a sudden, Jonah's obedient now. He's going to go to Nineveh. You know, it's nothing like being swallowed by a big fish to, you know, get you on the right track. And so sometimes correction comes our way. Uh, and, and the trial is something we brought on ourselves. Jonah brought the trial on himself, but God used it to, to correct him. And then, of course, we have uh, not just maturation, not just correction, but sometimes trials come uh, for direction. Sometimes a difficulty can actually be the way that God redirects our lives. Uh, maybe he has other purposes that we cannot see until hardship moves us in that direction. You, you can see a couple of examples in the Bible. You look at the Apostle Paul when he was on um, his way to Rome, sailing in the Mediterranean Sea. Acts chapter 27 and 28 record the whole incident when the ship ends up wrecking and uh, he ends up surviving barely and comes ashore on a little island of Malta in the middle of the Mediterranean uh, but it was there on the island of Malta that God used him 
in miraculous ways to heal people who were sick on that island. And it's interesting, you know, Paul hadn't sinned, he hadn't done anything wrong, just circumstances and trials, you know, being shipwrecked, he ends up on the island of Malta, and God used that to bring healing to people, and God just redirected Paul's life, because here Paul is on his way to Rome, and God's like, nope, I got some people on Malta that you need to see. And so sometimes trials happen because God is redirecting our lives, and it doesn't have anything to do with, like, disobedience. Um, There's another example in Scripture related to Paul, too. In Acts chapter 16, verse 6, it's interesting, that tells us on one of Paul's missionary journeys that Paul was on his way to Macedonia, but it, and he was in the region of Galatia. And in Acts 16, 6, it says, but we were kept by the Holy Spirit from going into Macedonia. Why would the Holy Spirit keep the apostle Paul from going somewhere to advance the gospel? If, in fact, God is going to use a trial to redirect him for other purposes. And what we end up finding then, when we read the letter to Galatians, in Galatians 4.13, Paul says to the people of Galatia, as you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. It's very interesting. When you put together Acts 16.6 and Galatians 4.13, what we learn is, The reason why Paul did not advance into Macedonia, the reason why he was sidelined in Galatia, is because he got sick. He hadn't sinned, he hadn't disobeyed God, he hadn't done anything wrong, but God then sidelined him in Galatia, and then the gospel came to the Galatians, because Paul ended up staying there instead of moving on. And so God used an illness to bring about actually Paul's advancement of the gospel there in Galatia rather than moving on to Macedonia. So there are different things. Listen, the point is simply this. There are some times that God will use a trial to redirect your life and it doesn't have anything to do with your disobedience. Sometimes it can be, you know, the difficulty, say, the breakup of a dating relationship because God is going to redirect you to another person. Uh, Sometimes it's the loss of a job. And at the moment, that feels devastating. It's a trial. It's difficult. How are you going to pay the bills? But it's because God wants you to get somewhere else. You know, sometimes it's the flat tire and we think, oh, this is a, you know, this is an inconvenience. This is a difficulty. But maybe God is redirecting you. You know, there are different things that happen. Not every trial is, is, is to be seen as something that is terrible because in the long run, it might actually be God's way of redirecting. So these are typically the three reasons why trials happen um, for our maturation, for our correction, and for our direction. But I want you to notice, if you're still here in James 1, if you jump down to verse 12, because again, he doesn't, some of this information is, you know, not all that organized. But in verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, blessed is the man or the woman, it's just a generic term, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And so what he's saying to us is, whatever the reason for the trial, whether it's for your maturation, correction, or direction, all trials in the end, you can rest assured if you persevere, you'll be blessed. Because the one who perseveres, no matter what the trial no matter what form the trial takes, or no matter for what purpose the trial happens, God gives this promise that if you persevere, 
you will be blessed. Now go back up here in chapter 1, where we left off at verse 5. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. So this section here now, he he talks briefly about wisdom. He's going to talk about wisdom further in the book, but first he talks about wisdom here. Uh, For you note-takers, jot down this verse. It's Proverbs 4, verses 5 through 7. This is what it says, Proverbs 4, 5 through 7. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or swerve from them. Do not forsake wisdom, and she will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. Wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. Now, it's interesting there. It tells us two things there in Proverbs 4, that wisdom is attainable. Otherwise, God wouldn't say, get it. Wisdom is attainable. That's one thing it tells us. But it also tells us that wisdom does not come naturally. Uh, God wouldn't tell us to get something if we just naturally had it. So that's important to recognize. Wisdom is attainable, but wisdom does not come naturally. So why does God tell us to get wisdom? And James talks about wisdom here. What is wisdom and how do we get it? Uh, So first things first, why does God tell us to get wisdom? And the answer to that, folks, is basically this. Because, Because circumstances in life demand it. Knowledge is not enough. Knowledge is not enough. There are problems that you will face. There are challenges. There are circumstances that confront all of us that need something more than what knowledge can provide. Have you ever been in situations where you realize not enough book smarts and not enough street smarts is going to help me with this? I need wisdom from above. Ever been in situations like that where you just realize not enough book smarts is going to help me? Not enough street smarts. I need wisdom from above. And that's why God says, get wisdom. Wisdom is supreme. You see, we live in a culture that says, get knowledge. We live in a culture that has almost deified education. It's like, get knowledge, get education. Now listen, nothing wrong with getting knowledge and nothing wrong with getting education. Only if that is like the God in your life, right? I like smart people, especially if they're going to take out my appendix. You know what I'm saying to you? I want somebody who's really smart and knows how to take out my appendix if I, if I ever need that. I want somebody who's really smart. If I get on an airplane, I want somebody really smart in the cockpit who knows exactly what he or she is doing. So I want smart people, and smart people are good. We need, we need smarts. We need knowledge. But knowledge is not the solution to everything in life. And so while we tout education, you know, in our culture, we've made, we've made knowledge the premium. We don't talk much about wisdom. We talk about knowledge, get a good education. Okay, fine. Get a good education and getting a good education has made a difference in a lot of people's lives. I get that, but we can't dismiss the importance of wisdom. And God says for us to get wisdom. Uh, Here's basically 
an understanding and a, and a differentiation between knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Think of it like this. Knowledge is the accumulation of information. Understanding is the interpretation. But wisdom is the application. See, I know a lot of smart people. They, they've, they've got a lot of knowledge. They've accumulated a lot of information, and they can interpret it well. But they, did, they don't know jack squat how to apply it. And so it's like, well, that person's really smart. You ever run into people who are brilliant? They got a lot of letters after their names, but they can't tie their shoes. And you're like, what happened here? Well, because there's sometimes a disconnect between, you can have a lot of information. You can just be a receptacle of information. You can even regurgitate the information. That's basically how I passed school. I just, I got it, I regurgitated it, right? But there's a whole difference between gathering information, interpreting it, okay, and then applying it. And for the application, we really need help from above. You know, you, for example, you can read all the parenting books in the world to try to be a good parent. But all that parenting information will be useless to you unless you have wisdom as to how to apply it. And as to how to apply it related to your particular children who are different and who are unique. You can read all the self-help books. You can read all, on approving your marriage and books on dieting and books on investing but if you don't have wisdom, all that information will just be an accumulation of stuff. Wisdom is supreme, God says. Therefore, get wisdom. When you're facing a crisis, you need the wisdom of God. When you're making life-impacting decisions, you need the wisdom of God. When you have questions or fears, you need the wisdom of God. Wisdom is supreme. Therefore, get wisdom. And so James talks here about wisdom. Uh, there is a difference, by the way, between worldly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. And James is going to talk a little bit more about that uh, further on in, in chapter 3. Worldly wisdom is basically the accumulation of knowledge and the accumulation of life experience. So people, it isn't, it isn't to say, because I want to make, make clear on this, it isn't to say that only Christians have wisdom. Uh, I, I would say this, only Christians have wisdom from above, but there's an earthly wisdom. However, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.19 that the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. So there is a certain measure of wisdom that people can have, obviously, who don't know the Lord, but that wisdom is basically based on what has been developed in their lives over time and experience and the accumulation of, of life um, experiences. But godly wisdom is from above, and it has nothing to do necessarily with how old you are. You know, I, I've met some very young people who have, like, wisdom beyond their years because they know the Lord and they have a wisdom from above to be able to see and discern things in their world that doesn't come through textbooks or life experience. It is something that is really from above. And so how do we get it? He tells us right there in verse 5, look at your Bibles again, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should what? Ask God. Pray and ask. See, how do I get this wisdom? You ask. And it says, and God, who gives generously to all, without finding fault. In other words, God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't discriminate. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to give wisdom to you, but not to you. If you ask, He'll distribute it. He'll give you wisdom from above generously without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But 
When he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because doubting is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Don't think you're going to get anything. (laughs) You're just a double-minded person. In other words, don't do this. Don't say, Lord, I need wisdom. I got this incredible decision I, I have to make, and I just, I need your wisdom from above. So give me wisdom. I probably won't. You know, don't do that. Just, just say, thank you, Lord. I, I'm going to trust that you're going to give me the wisdom for this. And, and, and I'm going to trust you based on your word and your faithful to your word. And you say that you give generously, you give liberally to all who ask without finding fault. And so thank you for the wisdom that I need today. And thank you for the wisdom that I need tomorrow. And pray and don't doubt because God gives generously to all without finding fault. So pray for wisdom which is a good place for us to pause tonight. And we'll do just that and because our time has escaped us. And we'll pick it up here next week. So read ahead. We'll pick it up at verse 9. But for tonight, let's pause and ask the Lord for wisdom. And maybe there's something in particular in your life that you need God's wisdom for. Let's just take a moment as we close our service and specifically ask Him for that. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the promise of your word. You tell us directly that if we lack wisdom, we should ask. And you will give generously to all without finding fault. But if we ask, we should not doubt. That just makes us double-minded. And you don't honor that. And so, Lord, I pray by faith. And we could all use wisdom, Lord, no matter if we're going through something specifically or we just need wisdom for everyday life. We pray for it right now, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name for just a fresh outpouring of wisdom from above that is beyond knowledge, beyond degrees, beyond education, information. Lord, we don't lack for information. We live in the information age. So much information is at our fingertips. But we lack for wisdom. So fill us, Lord, with your wisdom from above. I'm just going to pause in my prayer. Just still your heads bowed, just in an attitude of prayer. And I just want to invite you right now, just between you and the Lord, just quietly, just tell him specifically, Lord, I need wisdom for, and then just tell him. Just say, Lord, I need wisdom for whatever that situation, whatever that need. And now I want you to just respond by saying, thank you, Lord. I trust you that according to your word, you give liberally, generously, without finding fault. So I just receive your wisdom right now. And I trust your word that you are faithful to all your promises. That if we ask, you will give it. So we don't doubt. We just refuse to doubt right now. Instead, we receive and believe that you have given us your wisdom from above for whatever our need. And help us, Lord, to always remember this verse so that we don't run to other sources trying to figure things out. May we first pause And seek you and ask for wisdom. Give us your wisdom, Lord. 
And in regards to trials that we talked about tonight too, whoever might be facing a trial, Lord, thank you that you are faithful to us. That if we persevere, you bless us. And for some, you're, you're just trying to grow us up more. For others, you're trying to correct us. For others, you're trying to direct us, Lord. Whatever the situation, we thank you that if we persevere, you tell us that you bless us. And so take us through the trials, whatever we might be facing. And we trust you, Lord. We love you and we thank you together in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.